Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. This is Jason Gewertz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and our guest on this episode is Rich Harshbarger, the CEO of Running USA. While the entire sports event industry has attempted to navigate the recent weeks of the coronavirus pandemic and plan for some difficult weeks ahead, Running USA has been helping its members work their way through what in many cases are very difficult decisions about whether their events should be canceled or rescheduled. In this episode, we'll be discussing why those decisions are so challenging and the choices that race directors have when it comes to their events, as well as trends in running participation overall. But before we begin the conversation, here's a word from the sponsor of this episode. Make waves with your next sports event in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Sports planners are quickly discovering what makes Myrtle Beach the ideal place for sports events. Diverse facilities and fields, affordable accommodations, tons of attractions, and 60 miles of pristine beaches that are sure to please. Set new attendance records when you choose Myrtle Beach. Learn more at visitmyrtlebeachsports.com. That's visitmyrtlebeachsports.com. And now on to our episode. Rich Harshbarger took over as CEO of Running USA in 2014 at a time when running was reaching its peak of popularity in the United States. Today, the running industry remains one of the biggest drivers of athlete participation across all sports. In 2019, more than 17 million people registered to take part in a running event, with shorter distances seeing the most popularity. While those numbers are strong, participation rates have nonetheless been gradually declining in recent years, partly the result of the proliferation of other forms of recreation and exercise, forcing race directors to face increasing competition for people's time and dollars. But nothing compares to what the coronavirus pandemic has done, not just to the running industry, but the sports event industry as a whole. Running and mass participation events, however, have their own challenges because by their nature, large groups of people have to gather together for them to be successful. And the finances of race management and the sequence in which vendors are paid have compounded the problem for those events that have been scheduled in March, April, and May, if not longer. Race directors are having to make hard decisions about cancellation or postponement, and in many cases are not in a position to offer refunds for events that have to be canceled or moved. There's no question that road race events face a difficult few weeks ahead, but there's also considerable hope that when things return to normal, people will want to be out running in an organized setting just as soon as they can. In this conversation, Harshbarger discusses the challenges facing the running community, how Running USA has been working to provide education to its members about their choices, the compressed racing schedule ahead, and what the other side may look like when events return and people head back to the streets to attempt their personal best. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Rich Harshbarger, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm thinking back to the last time that we saw each other in person, which seems like a million years ago on a from a lot of angles. But that was a, an amazing trip. You and I uh, were at an event in central China in the city of Lanzhou, which is a fascinating place of about three million people that I had never heard of before. Uh, either of us went there. Um, but this was a, uh, a business conference that World Athletics, formerly the IAAF, organized for kind of the business of running events. And it was really interesting. There were uh, race directors from across China and from uh, across the world. Quite a few of the big U.S. marathons were represented. You were there. I was there as well. And it, it does seem like a long 
time ago <laughs> at this point. Um, but I kind of wanted to start there, Rich, because it, for one, it makes me think of how fortunate uh, both of us are uh, to have our jobs in the in the sports event industry to go on on these adventures. But for me, it was an eye opener for the running industry globally, which I was less familiar with as far as trends, and particularly in in China, where I think the numbers were that they had like twenty sanctioned races in two thousand eleven, and in two thousand seventeen, there were over a thousand. The industry was booming there. But that was that was an interesting time. I'm kind of curious to get your take on what that experience was like for you traveling uh, that kind of distance. If you're not familiar with Lanzhou, it's a uh, central China. You got to uh, fly a couple hours once you've landed in the main uh, places where you would land in China and Beijing or Shanghai. But what are your thoughts, Rich, about that time that we had together just uh, about a year ago? Yeah, well, actually, I have my boarding pass right here. I'm getting prepared <laughs> to talk to you today. I um, actually have my boarding pass from uh, May 28th uh, from Detroit to Beijing. And my goodness, how things have changed. Um, yes, I agree with you, Jason. We are very fortunate to work in this industry to be able to, um, that brings people together and helps people achieve a goal. It was amazing to see the amount of support that the sport has in China in such a, you know, I don't want to say um, off the beaten path kind of a city. I had never heard of the mm-hmm. city before, but being able to uh, to be there and to have you know tens of thousands of people come out and and just the overall support for the sport. I mean, remember the the large park and the monument that they had erected for, they were so proud to have hosted the conference in that city. And yeah, this was, they had both a, a monument to, as I recall, to the logo of their city marathon, which is what this event was tied around to. And then as only, I feel like only they can do in China, they unveiled this absolutely enormous uh, statue of the logo of the business conference we were at. It was like this big brass thing, right? 10 feet tall and I don't know, 30 feet wide. Um, just commem- yeah, commemorating the day and a half that we were all together for this conference. I mean, just the just the amount of pride that they have for the sport and the the amount of of pomp that they had. You know, remember the dragon dances and the drummers and everything at the start line. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, even the expo was kind of cool. They had a convention center there uh, in the city, and they had uh, one of the more interesting race expos I think I've ever seen in terms of the range of vendors that were uh, that were in that thing. It was uh, it was fascinating and it was amazing. And uh, of course, my favorite part of the whole trip, Rich, was the day that we got to spend together. The day of the the race itself, uh, after some ceremonies in the beginning, there were about forty thousand people that were racing at various distances. You know, uh, from five k's all the way up to the full marathon. And uh, as as can only happen when you travel, if and I'm sure you will remember, but uh, you and I were looking at this brochure from the hotel that showed one of the city monuments, which was this mother-child statue that on the map appeared to be about like six city blocks long. It looked like the largest <laughs> statue in the history of statues. And you and I set out to find it on about a four or five mile walk one way. And we walked on a on a pretty warm day. And when we got there... Nothing against the uh, the statue. It was a beautiful statue of this mother kind of cradling a child. But I don't know. What would you say, Rich? It looked like that statue was maybe six feet, seven feet <laughs> tall. Completely underwhelming. Yeah. It was, Completely yeah. underwhelming. It's the Yellow River Mother <laughs> sculpture. And yeah. uh, if anyone listening finds themselves in that part of the world, um, you know, I, I guess it's a can't miss, but uh, don't. 
you know, lower your expectations. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a can't miss, and it was almost literally a, a can miss uh, as we walked past it. Not even sure that we were in the right place when we finally saw it. But it was a, and I have great memories of of that trip, and of course, I've got great memories of traveling um, as recently as even a month ago, which uh, of course is is pretty much off limits for everyone in the new realm. So you know, let's transition a little bit, Rich, into into what's happening in the present day. And I thought that I'd start. Uh, for those who aren't as familiar with Running USA, why don't you provide just kind of the brief overview of what your organization does and who your members are? I think that might be some good context for the rest of the discussion. Sure. So Running USA is the National Trade Association for the Sport of Distance Running. So our aim and our mission is to educate events and those in the industry on best practices, monitoring trends, doing research, and and bringing people together collectively, whether that's an annual conference, which we host every year in February, or through webinars and just through our, our common networking. So uh, we are a member-based organization, so people join based on their business and then receive various benefits for their, their membership throughout the year, pricing benefits, insurance benefits, music licensing, and so on. So Uh, The majority of our members are events, and so we have everyone from the World Marathon Majors, Boston, New York, Chicago, and so on, all the way down to neighborhood 5Ks. Uh, That's the majority of our constituents, and then that the balance is filled with vendors who offer either registration platforms, fundraising platforms, charities, nonprofits such as leukemia, lymphoma, lupus, and so on. And so we operate virtually. Uh, our team is used to working at home and on the road. Uh, that's mm-hmm. you know, So this, these new travel warnings and so on uh, has not impacted our ability to deliver on the mission. Right. So I want to ask you a little bit, I guess, about all of those different aspects of your, of your membership. So uh, for starters, I guess, Rich, what have the last couple of weeks been like for you and your organization in trying to be a resource as all of these events, you know, unfortunately are being uh, shut down, at least temporarily. Obviously, some are being rescheduled, some have to be canceled, and we'll go into that here in a minute. But what has this process been like for you guys as an organization just to be a resource in the face of, you know, this uh, overwhelming tide of, of event cancellations and reschedulings that have come seemingly out of nowhere? Well, like everyone in in the world, it's been upended. The you know sense of normalcy has been has been anything but. the The interesting opportunity that Running USA is is facing right now is the ability to deliver and connect on our mission. The ability to bring people together. To, we've been hosting town halls. We call them a virtual race camp based on. Uh, our annual conference, we have these sessions called race camps where uh, they're really discussion based. They're not presentation based or keynote based types of, of topics where uh, folks can come together and discuss various things. And so we are now in week four of that process. We're opening, we've opened the ability to participate and contribute to people, not just our membership but uh, people who are impacted in, by the endurance industries. We've had people from all over the world uh, join us, people from Poland and Spain and Denmark and, and England and just all over, people from Asia participate. And really what we're, what we're trying to do right now is, like everyone, figure this out. And so we're bringing people together to talk about best practices of what happens if you have to cancel or postpone. 
what happens if you have to lay people off or if you have to shutter your business. And in some cases, unfortunately, we've seen that happen just even in the last few weeks. We know that about a third of the races typically take place in between March and say May or June. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now we know that there's about you know 5,000 of those races that have been postponed or canceled. Um, yeah, that's amazing. It's, it's incredible. And what, what a lot of people of those who have postponed are starting to realize is the very real impact that's going to have on the supply uh, of, of resources in the back half of the year. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about that, Rich, because that's that's an interesting concept. Obviously, the schedule alone is going to be difficult just to uh, find a place in the calendar, assuming that these events can even take place uh, by the end of the year. But what you were just getting at there as well, the available vendors and support, uh, I would imagine, is going to look pretty stretched here. Vendors and support, and also the very real likelihood of cannibalization. So if your race was typically in May and you postpone to September, and if you typically have 20,000 runners, and now are you thinking that you're going to get 10,000 runners? And then what are conversations are you having with, with timers, with photographers, with city officials in terms of other things that are happening that weekend or within even a hundred mile radius of your city? What are the conversations you're having with your sponsors around, okay, is company X going to pay you a hundred percent of their sponsorship, even though your race has been delayed, but the delivery of the expectation 20,000 is now maybe 10,000. And Mm. then are you going to host it again six or eight months later in May? And what are the conversations around your sponsors, you know, going to be like? And are you expecting if you had 10,000 people run in September, are you going to expect back to, you know, full boat in 20,000 May of 21? So there's so many unknowns right now. Yeah. Is there any way to put a, a number or even like a rough percentage on how many of these races, particularly, I guess, the ones that are coming up here in the next couple of months, how many uh, have already made a decision just to cancel as opposed to trying to squeeze it in and, and find another place on the calendar to reschedule? So that that is changing daily. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, you know, there's lots of, of websites and I'm not going to plug, you know, any of them, but there, there, there are lots of websites that are working to put together calendars and, and, and things, you know, we have several links at our site, but as I said, it, it, it's changing daily and there's the very real conversation going on of events, whether or not, you know, is, is cancellation the way to go versus postponement because of the issues we just mentioned. Let's talk a little bit about for those that, uh, you know, unfortunately have to cancel or are in a position to do that, just a, a little bit maybe for our audience about the the finances of these races. I think it's a different proposition 
if you're talking about say a, a baseball game that isn't happening and and you know a team has to refund tickets or figure out another game perhaps uh, you know obviously in running races and these mass participation races people are paying entry fees and a lot of times the race organizers I know obviously they're using the the proceeds from that fees to uh, to pay these vendors and get everything set up for the race uh, particularly for these most recent uh, you know races that were scheduled for the end of March and April and May, Rich, give some insight, I guess, onto how the flow of these finances works and how difficult it is for, I know, for some of these races to even offer a refund to uh, participants. Yeah. So we know based on on data that we've collected over the years that in some cases as high as, I got an email yesterday uh, from an event that they think they are going to have to cancel, 98% of their revenue comes from entry fees. On average, we know that it can be as high as 80% uh, of, of uh, revenue coming from entry fees, the balance coming from merchandise sales, um, exhibitor sales, and, and obviously sponsorships. But as you said, you know the majority of these expenses are paid for staff salaries and for advanced, uh, advanced pur- purchases that are in tip, you know, typically are hard goods. They're, they're timing chips, their shirts, their medals, various equipment, and so on. And so there's a, a real myth that events operate on, on wide margins, and that's just simply not the case. And so in a typical year, in a typical year, and again, it depends on what source you want to use, but we've sourced this in, in various ways, all of the the numbers are, are kind of, uh, they're directionally in agreement, in alignment, that, you know, in an average year, there's a, in running, there's just about 1.2 to 1.5 billion, with a B, dollars raised on entry fees. And so this, this amount of, of revenue that's coming in, like I said, directly goes to support salaries and contracts and, and various other expenses. And offering refunds in a in an industry that is known or notorious for not issuing refunds, you know, is is a real financial hardship. You are listening to the Sports Travel Podcast with Rich Harshbarger of Running USA. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Make waves with your next sports event in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Sports planners are quickly discovering what makes Myrtle Beach the ideal place for sports events. Diverse facilities and fields, affordable accommodations, tons of attractions, and 60 miles of pristine beaches that are sure to please. Set new attendance records when you choose Myrtle Beach. Learn more at visitmyrtlebeachsports.com. That's visitmyrtlebeachsports.com. Dot com. Rich, have you guys started to talk at all about kind of what everything looks like on the other end of this and what your uh, what your members and what some of these race directors are going to need the most uh, in this new normal? I think it's it's hard for everyone to kind of figure out what that normal looks like and how quickly everything comes back in order. But are, are people starting to think about this sort of post-crisis world and and what they're going to need in terms of support or, or what these events look like? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, and, and I don't want to pretend to have a crystal ball here. And yeah. obviously this is, this is gravely serious, both in terms of, of public health and as well as in just the overall 
viability of, of the business. Um, you know, but the good news, I think, is, you know, and you can anecdotally see this and, and several national newspapers have, have done pieces on this already, but is is the return to running, right? You see people out and about. It's, it's spring in most of the country and, you know, people are out. I think the real, um, I think the real concern at this point is the potential for a, a public hangover in the sense of people desiring to be back together in groups. You know, the fact that, yes, running is, is a solitary sport. It is something you can do on your own. You don't have to be in large groups. But, you know, the idea of people gathering again in mass at sporting venues or concert venues or anything like that, you know, is going to be the real test is that are you going to want to line up in a corral of 500 people? Are you going to want to be in a, a multi tens of thousands of, of volumes of people? Um, I think that's going to be the real, the real test. And so unfortunately, I think there are going to be races that don't survive. I think that there are going to be mm-hmm. events that, that don't make it. There's going to be vendors. We're already seeing, like I said, companies that make their living on planning and, and scheduling events and, you know, they get half of their calendar wiped out. What's the real viability? They're going to have to put food on their tables too. Well, it's a concern across all sports, I think right now. And I think it's a fair question of, you know, the psychological end as well of, you know, how quickly people are going to want to assemble and particularly for the events that your members organize, you know, these mass participation races where that is the, that's the experience you're, you're running alone, of course, but with all these other other people. So I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see, uh, particularly, I guess, for those first races that really come back online or are able to keep their schedule, kind of what that looks like. One thing that, that we're really proud of, and I don't know if, if, if you even are aware of this, but one of the things that Running USA has entered into is to work alongside several leaders in the endurance industry at large. That includes triathlon, cycling, and multi-sport events, obstacle course racing. We have entered into a coalition, the Endurance Industry Coalition, uh, and we are working with Washington, uh, D.C., with lobbyists to help put our case forward collectively in one voice um, to be able to ask Congress and for, for specific help. We're not the airlines. We're not the hotels. We're not a sports league that has any sort of representation. So this is new for us, but it is one that, that we think is going to be helpful to be able to tell our story about an industry that is easily overlooked, but impacts every state in this country. Yeah, I did see that announcement come over uh, the other day, Rich, and it, it certainly caught my eye. You've got a couple of national governing bodies like USA Cycling and USA Triathlon that you mentioned, and these other high-end race series, Ironmans and, and Spartans and the like. Um, and I couldn't recall you know, a time where I've seen that kind of, uh, or one, the need for that kind of cooperation, and, and two, the, um, you know, the level of cooperation that that initiative seems to have brought out. So if nothing else, I would imagine that may be a positive moving forward, knowing that that all of you guys can, uh, you know, combine your voices on something like this? Well, we hope so. And it is really from the leadership of Joe DeSena at Spartan and Andrew Messick at Ironman to pull this group together. Um, Running USA has been able to provide some statistics and and some trends and, and try and put some context around just the running side of things. Obviously, we don't track other sports, but, you know, we're, we're not a governing body. 
you know, but we're doing everything we can to be able to share the impact um, and demonstrate to Congress that, you know, every single one of those elected officials have an event, whether it's a triathlon, a cycling event, a run, a fun run, a, a major marathon. So they have something in their districts, in their states that is being impacted. And our hope is as a collective voice that we can represent um, our industry as a whole and not just, you know, be seen as different competing sports. We're, we're really coming together. And in times like this, this is when sport really sort of transcends everything else. And it's runners and, and endurance athletes as a whole are, are typically generous and kind and, and understanding. And so we hope that that will come through in this effort. One of the things that I think Running USA is terrific at is the the research that you do on the industry and uh, provide to your members. So in the remaining time we have here, Rich, I wanted to talk a little bit about trends you know, that we're seeing. Obviously, 2020 is going to be an anomaly uh, for everyone across the board, but let's kind of take the last couple of weeks out of the equation and talk a little bit about what the what the trends have been in terms of participation. I, I know you recently released data for 2019 uh, showing a, a slight drop from the year before, and I know that's been gradually down, but at the same time, there's over 17 million people from your statistics that are running every year, which is a huge number. So uh, let's talk a little bit just about what those trends have looked like over the last couple of years, Rich, and, and how people are running or, or not running. What What's happening out there? Sure. So we have been in about a six-year leveling off decline um, when you look at the numbers. Um, the, high, the high point was in 2013 with about 19 million people crossing the finish line. As you said, we're down about 2.7% to just over 17 uh, million people registering for a race in 2019. And the reality is, is that we knew that supply had outpaced demand. We knew that there were many, many other opportunities uh, and experiences that people are looking to have. So, you know, the the, the rise of, of the marathon and independent running gave way to, you know, CrossFit, gave way to, you know, soul cycle and cycling experiences. And now Peloton is disrupting and you've got mm-hmm. class pass and some of the other opportunities that are out there. There's just been, you know, a, just a, a slight decline year after year. The good news is when you, when you look at events that are growing, they're typically experience-based. Late last year, Lululemon introduced a Lululemon 10K Mm-hmm. Um, they had never been in the running world before. Obviously, they're known for yoga. And, you know, they saw sellouts happen immediately. Uh, a lot of that obviously has to do with the brand and their approach and, sure. you know, their their commitment. But overall, the, the numbers are, you know, continue to decline, and um, but not in large droves. You know, we do see that runners are planning to run or enter, you know, eight to nine events a year. That is pretty on par with what we've seen in the past. And and at the same time, the demographic of the runner remains stable and highly desirable. It skews female, younger, educated, with high disposable income. So from a sponsor standpoint, um, that is at least a good story. 
Yeah, I, I noticed just the other day you guys had another piece of research about virtual runs, which is interesting too. I know it was research that was taken before all of this began, but it looked like last year something like you know almost twenty five percent or so of runners had said they participated in some kind of virtual run. That that seems to be. I don't know, maybe an opportunity, particularly in the in the weeks and months to come, but something that it certainly seems might gain some traction after after all of this subsides as well. Absolutely. You know, if you would have asked me a year ago about my opinion on virtual runs, I, I would have had <laughs> one answer for you. Now my answer is, well, it's evolving. Um, you know, I think it's it's definitely a great option for events to be able to, it's not ideal, but it is something that you know, can still begin to offer an experience for some of these events that have had to cancel. I mean, I guess picking up on an earlier point that you made, Rich, I, as we look ahead, it just seems to me that you know, once whatever metric you want to use uh, for people to be comfortable going out and, and participating, we know we'll get there at, at some point once all of this subsides, but it does seem like there is going to be uh, such a desire, to, uh, you know, once it's safe for people to be out uh, participating. And I, I can just see uh, plenty of opportunities down the road. Obviously, the question is whenever that is, but I, I would think that people are going to take to running events uh, in particular once we get on the other side of this thing. I, I can't imagine that not happening because, again, runners and, and endurance athletes are are just so generous and so committed and, you know, I think about the, the charities and the fundraising programs that are impacted by this and people are going to want to get back to achieving goals and helping others achieve theirs. And, and that's what the sport does. Yeah, well, uh, you and I won't be traveling to Lanzhou anytime soon, which is unfortunate, but maybe on the other end of this, we can, uh, maybe you and I can take a trip back over there and uh, <laughs> visit our favorite statue in a, in a time that uh, people will be in, enjoying traveling and, and seeing the world because uh, I obviously see uh, that time coming at, at some point and I, I look forward to those days when we can gather again in, uh, in that kind of setting. Absolutely. The first bowl of noodles is on me. <laughs> We didn't talk about the spicy noodles, but if you are ever in Lanzhou, you must check out the spicy beef noodles and I will take you up on that offer um, <laughs> for sure. All right, Rich, well, uh, we're about out of time, so I'll, I'll end it there. But thank you very much for taking the time out uh, out of what I know is a busy schedule uh, for you and your staff and and trying to keep uh, your constituents uh, educated and, and aware of what's happening. And, you know, let's keep the conversation going and, you know, good luck to you and, and all the races out there in the in the weeks and months to come. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which also features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.